Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. Yes, I was looking over uh, Ken's sermon outline, and I'll try to correct him to make sure he's okay. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, Ken is my brother-in-law, so I can abuse him to no end. And he happens to be my next-door neighbor. So it gets worse. We live on land that my grandmother bought in 1950 in South Arlington. So my sister and her family have a house, and we have a house, and then my mother essentially lives in my backyard, <laughs> although it is her own lot and her own house. They, uh, my parents bulldozed my grandmother's little frame house to build their house. And I always decided when I retired, that's the job I wanted. Three old guys showed up with the largest caterpillar bulldozer I'd ever seen. They get a running start, and they just drive right into the house. Doesn't that sound like fun? We continue to work our way through the book of Matthew. We've kind of slowed down a little bit as we got to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. It begins with the Beatitudes, the blessed are... What does it mean to be happy, to be blessed by the Lord as we enter the kingdom of heaven? So we'll start there. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're going to take a little bit of a tiny, tiny, tiny break because I want to return to what this is all about. Blessed are, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The reason I want to stop a little bit is because I get the feeling sometimes working through this list that, well, there's another verse, there's another thing I'm not doing. (laughs) And instead of making us happy, which is the purpose of it, blessed are the people who have these characteristics, sometimes we we begin to sense that it's simply a burden. Today I've got to figure out how to be meek. Shoot. Today I have to be merciful. Drat. I blew that one. Or guilt. The guilt starts piling on and we go, oh no, there's another thing that we can't do. And I reflected on this week because today we're going to talk about blessed are the pure in heart. Now, we're not going to start with a show of hands about how many of you would consider yourselves pure of heart. Because if you were honest, there probably wouldn't be a lot of hands. 
So let's remind ourselves where all of this started and where it's going. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those, happy are those who realize they can't do it. They cannot do it on their own. That's the key to all of this. This is the key that opens the door and lets you into the kingdom of heaven. If you think that I can sit here and put this together as a list saying, today I'm going to work on meekness between 9 and 10.30, if you think you can do that, you still think you can do that. And that's the problem. The reality is we need to acknowledge that apart from Christ's righteousness, we cannot be saved. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we cannot do any of these things. These characteristics are given to us so that we will be happy and joyful. You go, wait a minute. I don't want to be meek. Then that's a problem. Because Jesus described himself as being gentle and meek. And if you have no desire, then that should be a red flag that, oops, maybe I'm going in the wrong direction. So when we are covered with guilt because we can't fulfill the list, there are a couple of possibilities. One is, and I just have to say this, you may not be a believer. I've said in here repeatedly, it is not my job to determine who is and who is not a believer. But there are certain red flags that raise and go, wait a minute, watch it. You may be, you may not be what you think you really are. If you have no desire for righteousness, if you have no desire to be meek, if you have no desire to mourn over your sin, if you have no desire to be merciful, these are warnings. These are red flag warnings, and I am not going to relieve that guilt at all, okay? Because that's the Holy Spirit working in your life, and who am I to interfere with that? But having acknowledged that we cannot do it, having mourned over our sin, having been humbled and been made meek, we can then recognize that if we are going to do these things, it's because God's going to do them through us. Do we still have work to do? The answer is yes. We do not work for our salvation, but our salvation drives us to work that out in our everyday life. We do have to wake up and say, you know, I did that yesterday, and it wasn't a very humble thing to do. And the Holy Spirit says, you're right. Actually, it usually starts with the Holy Spirit. And we go, you're right. Right? So the Holy Spirit moves, we respond, and that's how we grow in our Christian life. But, but I don't feel like I'm making it. That's true. I would argue if you feel like you've made it, you've given up the fight. You know, it's like I've always said in Romans chapter 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing, a wretched man that I am. If you don't feel that way, it's because you've given up the fight. You've stopped the fight. We need to be like Jesus. 
we need to be like Paul, who acknowledged the fact that in this world there's going to be, and you do know that all this is building up for two weeks from now, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted. Because that makes no sense at all. Happy are those who are abused. Okay, maybe we'll worry about that in two weeks. But that's where we're headed with this. Let me let you in on a little secret, okay? God created the universe, okay? God created the universe, and he created it with a moral basis to it. What does that mean? It means that we make choices, and some of those choices are good, and some of those choices are bad, and when we make good choices, life is good, and when we make bad choices, life is bad. Wait a minute. I know lots of people making lots of bad choices, and they seem to be doing real well. Well, go read the psalmist who says, yeah, I thought that, and then I went into the temple, and I realized the fate of those people, and I realized it wasn't going to turn out good for them. As we live this life, this life is a classroom where we learn to be humble, we learn to be meek, we learn to mourn over our sin, we learn to be merciful. And some days we do it, and some days we don't. And the more we do it, the more we realize we need to do it more. I've told you before, I was a math major, I studied math, and the more math I learned, the more math I knew I didn't know. It wasn't like I got to some point and stopped and said, Woo, I know it all. I never, ever reached that point. I never came close to that point. That's the Christian life. The more we learn about God's holiness, the more we realize we are sinners. The more we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us to make us meek, the more we realize we have this pride inside of us that keeps wanting to pop its head up. And we need to pray, and we need to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And the scripture says, that is the blessed life. Not something else. That is the blessed life. But sometimes it doesn't feel like it. That's true. That's true. But that's because we have this idea of what life is supposed to be like. And we have this idea of what life is supposed to be like. And this is our Sunday version where we study our Bible and we go, oh, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then we have this version where the world says you have to stand up for yourself and be strong and be tough and be mean. And we sit here and spend all of our lives trying to take these two pieces and put them together into something that will work. And God says it will not work. What we need is one vision. And that, I'll spoil the whole lesson for you. That is being pure in heart. Our problem is we have this, and we have this, and we have that one over there, and we have that one over there, and we spend our lives trying to put them all together. We move on to the next beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean 
to be pure. Come on, this is easy. What is pure gold? Undefiled. It's not mixed with anything else. This ring is not pure gold because pure gold is soft and it wouldn't survive very long, okay? They mix it with something. I hope this water is pure water. <laughs> but let me give you just an observation. I live two doors over from 25 horses, okay? On a lot that is way too small, but it was grandfathered so the zoning laws don't apply. So this lot of horses over here generates what? Horse poop. <laughs> Large piles of horse poop. They have a two-acre stabled area that has gone up five feet in the last 20 years. <laughs> I'm not making this up. They had to add a, a higher fence because the fence was... Ha. Now the question is, I go over there and I get a spoonful of horse poop and I put it in this glass of water. Okay, not even, not even a spoonful, okay? A, a minuscule amount. Do you think I would drink the water if, I mean, there's only a little bit of horse poop in it, right? Do you think that I would drink the water? No, why? Because it's not pure and I know it's not pure. Purity means that it is not polluted by something else. It is only one thing. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now here's where the long discussion comes. What is our heart? You know, we as good 21st century materialists believe the heart is that organ in your body that pumps blood. It's kind of vital to your life. You know, without it, you don't live. In biblical terms, the heart is not that organ inside your body, although they did know about the organ inside their body. They weren't ignorant. The heart was the center of who you really are. It is your mind, your will, and your emotions that determine who and what you are. That's why there are literally thousands of verses dealing with your heart. You can go to the book of Proverbs and probably run into it every fourth or fifth verse. But when it's talking about the heart, it uses some really good words and some really bad words. It talks about your wicked heart, your deceived heart, your hardened heart. It talks about learning wisdom in your heart. It talks about learning knowledge in your heart. But it also talks about it being deceived and wicked. We as believers 
understand the Christian doctrine that is known as total depravity. You know what that is? Yes, it is the first of the five points of Calvinism. Ken is going to preach about Calvin today. We're not going to talk about predestination. Okay, we're just not going to do it. But the first point is total depravity. That means when we were born in sin, sin permeated every part of your body, every part of your being. Your body is corrupted, your heart is corrupted. Your mind, your will, and your emotions are all tainted like this water would be if I put something in it. Your mind, your will, and your emotions are all tainted with sin. Now, the doctrine of total depravity does not say that you are as bad as you could be. Theologians use the term absolute depravity for the person who is, in fact, as bad as they could possibly be. I don't know anybody that's as bad as they possibly could be. Even Adolf Hitler could have been worse. We could speculate on that, right? Total depravity says that when we were born in sin, sin permeated our mind, our will, and our emotions. Our hearts are not pure. Let's just face it, right? Our hearts, our mind, our will, and our emotions are clouded with some things of God, some things of the world, some things of the flesh, and some things of the devil. And they're all put in there, put in the blender, you hit puree, and voila, that's the human heart. In fact, we're told it can get worse. Because the human heart was given the law of God. Back to Romans chapter 1. We talk about that frequently. It says that we as human beings were given the truth about what and who God is. The invisible attributes of God were clearly seen, but we chose to worship the creator over the, the created rather than the creator. And it says... Our hearts were hardened, and God gives us over to sin. When we refuse to acknowledge God, our heart, our mind, our will, and emotions become harder. What does that mean? It means that it is more likely to keep going down the path that it's going than to turn and repent and to accept the things of God. The condition of your heart, you could almost make the case in the scripture that the condition of your heart should be the number one concern of your life. Because out of the heart, the scripture tells us, comes all of life. Every decision you make, every desire that you follow, every thought, out of your heart comes all the things that make you who you are. That's why the book of Proverbs tells us repeatedly, guard your heart. Why? Because it has a tendency to be hardened as we chase the things of this world. So, what is purity of heart? Remember, we started with all that 
This is intended to make you happy. This is intended for your good. God created a universe, and you, as a created being, will only truly be happy when you have purity of heart. It is not diluted with anything else. So, let's tear it apart piece by piece. The heart is the mind, the will, and the emotions. What is the mind? The mind is that part of us that thinks. We will not get into a long discussion about the mind-body problem. You all familiar with that idea? To a good 21st century naturalist, materialist, which most of us are, we think thinking, we think thinking, that's right, we think thinking is simply the synapses in our brain flashing at current times, and all it is is material stuff. And you know what? There's a lot of material stuff up there, and it's very, very important. But as believers, we know that there is a spiritual dimension of life, and there is a spiritual component to the way we think, the way we feel, and the way that we will, the way that we choose. The mind-body discussion is, is the body, is the mind only a physical thing? And that's what, well, I would say almost every modern psychologist would teach you today. I think it's kind of interesting, the field of psychology, what is psych? It's the soul, and they deny the existence of a soul. You can open a modern psychology book, because I've done this, look in the index, look for a reference to soul. There aren't any of them. Okay, because there isn't one. All it is is synapses flashing back and forth. That's why there are those who are convinced. You know, I said we weren't going to talk about predestination. We're not going to talk about predestination. But there are a lot of modern scientists who are convinced you have no free will because everything you do is simply those synapses going off in your brain. Now, what they have decided is that it is good of you to think that you have free will, even though you know you don't. Because it will make your life happier if you think your choices make a difference. But we know they don't. Kind of strange. I'm not making this up. I read this in science magazines. Okay? We believe that there is, in fact, no, I mean, you can't deny that there is a physical brain. But there's a spiritual dimension to it, and those two are interacting with each other. You know, it's like, I'm depressed. Is that a physical problem or a spiritual problem? In my traditional answer, the answer is yes. I've told you years, years ago, my grandmother gave me a book by Paul Tenier, and I don't know why she gave me this book. It had nothing to do with anything I was interested in. I think she gave it to me because it was on her shelf, and she gave it to me. <laughs> Fascinating book. I read three or four more books by him. He was a Swiss physician, and he was seeing patients. Patients would come to his doctor's office, and uh, he'd start talking to them, and he'd realize they don't have a physical problem. They have a spiritual problem. So he would tell them to come back in the evening when he wasn't working. Okay, because during the day you handle physical problems and off hour. And he finally said, why am I doing this? If they come to my office and they have a physical problem, I need to fix the physical problem. 
If they come to my office and they have a spiritual problem, I need to deal with the... We acknowledge the fact that all of this goes together. The mind is how we think. And it is both physical and it is spiritual. And it is corrupted by the taint of sin. What does that mean? What does it mean that our thinking is corrupted by the taint of sin? Well, what do we think about? Well, sin. <clears throat> no, we didn't, I didn't say that, did I? What do we think about uh, getting our own way? What do we think about all day long? How I can get ahead. What do we think about how I can increase my comfort? We think about a lot of things, and a lot of those thoughts are conditioned by, well, what everybody else around us is. Here's a hard question. What did Jesus think about? Jesus thought about doing the will, we'll get to that in just a moment, the will of the Father. I've told you before, Jesus saw a crowd, and what did he think? These are sheep without a shepherd. They need the gospel. I see a crowd, and what do I think? Gosh, they're in my way. (laughs) They're a nuisance. Jesus is tired. He wants a glass of water, and some woman shows up to talk to him. Have you ever had that happen? I told you, last year I was on an airplane. I had been in a meeting all day. I was tired. It was dark. It was night. And this guy next to me wanted to convert me to Hinduism. I didn't even want to talk to him. I was tired. But we spent three hours talking about it. Our minds are focused on what we think is most important, which generally is us. And we need to turn to God and say, God, take my mind and turn it toward you. We are to love the Lord our gods with all our blank, blank, and mine. We are to think the thoughts of God. Wait, I can't do that. You're right. Isn't that where we started all this? I can't do that. But I'll tell you this. Do I dare tell you this? If you read this book as much as you watch TV, you would think the thoughts of God. Are you going to let you in a secret? I don't do that. We don't do that. I've told people before, we think nothing of sitting down and watching a two-hour movie. But to suggest to someone they sit down for two hours and read their Bible would just be unheard of. My mind would explode. Probably because it's out of practice. So start with a little bit and move to a little bit more and move to a little. We transform our minds. Ooh, this sounds like Romans chapter 12. We transform our minds as we take God's word and we meditate on it and we bring it in so our thoughts begin to reflect the mind of God. And then 
we become pure in heart. Now, we're going to back up just a little bit. Are we ever going to get there in this life? Maybe, but I doubt it. The mind, the will. What do we choose? Why do we choose? How do we choose? And this is the one where we can talk about Christ very clearly. He said, my will is to do the will of the Father. God tells us what he wants us to do. You know, we have long discussions. We have seminars on determining the will of God for your life. And that's probably good, okay? I'm not going to dispute any of that. You know, who should I marry? What job should I have? When should I retire? All these big decisions in life, we want God's help, and we take seminars on how to do that. When the reality is the Scripture says love your neighbor. It's not ambiguous, by the way. It's not difficult to understand. We just don't like our neighbor. Oh, did I say my neighbor's preaching today? <laughs> we won't go there. I would contend, I would contend that there are more clear descriptions of God's will given in the scripture than we want to hear about because they're clear and it's obvious. Yes, it is a hard problem. Who is my grandchild going to marry? Who is my daughter going to marry? I still have three daughters to marry off. When am I going to do, when am I going to retire? What am I going to do after? I, what am I, those are really good questions. But just pick some random passage of the New Testament. Some random passage. I picked the New Testament because I don't want you to choose one of those in the Old Testament about slaughtering your enemies. <laughs> That's a different discussion. Go to the book of Ephesians. Go to chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the book of Ephesians. Just pick some random verse. That's the will of God. What are we to do if we're going to be pure in heart? We're going to do the will of God. We are going to choose to choose what he has chosen for us to do. I hate to tell you this. It's not that complicated. But sometimes it's really hard. Because we have this vision of life. We have this Sunday vision of life. And we spend our lives trying to take these two visions and mash them together. It's like if you took a Venn diagram. You all know what a Venn diagram is? You know, the circles and one circle, one circle, and they intersect somewhere. We're trying to find the intersections between doing it our own, doing it our own way and doing it God's way. And guess what? <laughs> There's no intersection. Purity of heart means that we choose to choose what God would have us choose. How do we know that? The scripture tells us. And when the scripture doesn't tell us, if we have allowed the scripture to infiltrate our lives, 
I will guarantee this for you, okay? You will get into a difficult situation, and the Holy Spirit's going to go, you know all those verses you read back there? Here it is, right there. Go do it. But I don't want to. Well, that's another problem. Purity of heart means we think the thoughts of God. We allow our minds to be influenced by God and his view of the world. It means that our will is coupled to what God would have us to do. And then our mind, our will, and emotions. Ah, emotions. It just makes me angry. Oh, wait. What are emotions? There are reactions to things, our gut feelings. It's our, you know, something happens and we just know that's not right or we know that's good or we know that's bad and we have strong feelings one way or the other. And our society today has taken, taken feelings and has declared that that's the truth. Whatever you feel has to be the truth because it's real. It's authentic. It's who you really are. Hogwash. Our emotions fell just like our mind and our will, and it has to be redeemed. They have to be redeemed just like every other part of your life. You take a small child and you give them ice cream. And they learn to love ice cream. You take a small child, you give them vegetables. They will learn to eat vegetables. I didn't, but I didn't try very hard. I kid you not, I was sitting outside, reading a magazine, of a restaurant bar in Nacogdoches last weekend. It was parents' weekend. The kids are off shopping. I'm sitting there reading a magazine. And this family walks up to go into the restaurant, and this kid, this big, this kid said, oh, is this the place that has the good asparagus? Why would a kid say that? Because the child had been taught to desire the things they ought to desire. Our emotions need to be trained to reflect what God desires. We are to love that which God loves. And we are to hate that which God hates. But that doesn't sound very authentic. Sure it is. It's an authentically sanctified believer. It is Christ working in you to allow you to desire what you ought to desire. Our emotions are real, okay? This is not, let's introduce a world with no emotions. Emotions are real. They are part of who you are. They're a part of who I am. We can deny them. We can suppress them. But they're real. They are a part of our heart. But they have to be redeemed just like everything else. How do I know if my emotion is right or if my emotion is wrong? You ready for this? You know the answer to this. 
I don't even need to tell you the answer to this. The Bible tells us. It tells us what we are to desire. It tells us what we are to learn, to love, to hate, to seek after, to run away from. Our emotions need to be redeemed just like every other part of our being. Blessed are the pure in heart, mind, will, and emotions aimed at what God would have them directed toward. Nowhere else are we going to see such a beautiful picture of the process of sanctification. Because I guarantee you, the day you become a believer, there are some sins that you're just going to go, wow, that was horrible, I'm putting that away. And there's some sins that the next day you're going to wake up and you go, you know, I'd really like to do that again. But you're a believer. You're a true believer. And the Holy Spirit tells you, don't do that. And at that point in time, you go, oh, okay, I won't do it. And the next day you go, gosh, I'd really like to do that again. No, don't. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and eventually you wake up and you go, I don't want to do that today. Now, there'll be another sin, okay? There'll be another sin that God will deal with. You know, you're going to get to this point where you don't want to do that, and all of a sudden the, the devil's going to come and say, aren't you proud of the fact that you don't want to do that? Don't you want people to know how proud you are of the fact you're... Don't you want to stand up in public and tell people, I'm really great because I don't do that? And at that point, the Holy Spirit is going to go, don't listen to him, he's the devil. And you go, okay. And the next day, and the next day, and that is the Christian life. The goal is purity of heart. It is fascinating that it uses the word heart. You know, I could have seen writing the scripture, blessed are those whose life is pure. But you know what you would have done? You would have done exactly what the Pharisees did. You would have made yourself look so pure on the outside that the rest of us would have to put on our sunglasses because the light is reflecting off of you so much. <laughs> That's what you would have done. You would have looked so good on the outside that the rest of us would be horribly impressed. This is really important because the last two-thirds of chapter 5 of the book of Matthew are going to deal with this exact topic. You have heard it said, don't murder. I'm off the hook. I have never murdered anyone in my life. I can stand up here and say without question, I have never murdered anyone in my life. But I say to you, Jesus says, if you are angry with your brother, you have committed murder in your heart. Shoot. You know what? That's a condition of the heart. I have been angry at people. Maybe not in the last 
eight minutes, <laughs> but maybe in the last 24 hours. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. I will stand up here and tell you, I've been married for a bunch of years. I have never committed adultery. But I tell you, if you've lusted after a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. Oh, shoot. (laughs) And on and on and on. And we're going to cover all those specifics later in chapter 5. It is moving from the external behavior that the Pharisees mastered. Okay? Sometimes we forget. They were really good at it. It is moving from the outside behavior to the condition of the heart. And Jesus looks at his crowd and says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Every day, you need to ask God to make this vision of life less and this vision of life more. And that is what produces purity of heart. We need to look at the sins in our lives and say, no, but I can't do that. You're right, you can't. Pray to God. The Holy Spirit will give you the strength. If you still can't do it, go find a Christian brother or sister and say, I'm struggling with this. I can't do it. And they'll go, I'm going to watch you to make sure you do do it. And guess what? That's the Christian life. But you know, doesn't American culture say we have to do it on our own? You know, stand up, be strong. No? Well, maybe it does. But that's not what the Bible says. We have the scripture, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the community of believers, and that's how we grow in godliness, and that's how we learn to be pure in heart. What are the sins in your life that consume you? I know what mine are. I'm not going to tell you. It's none of your... No. Is it pride? Is it lust? Not sexual, could be, but lusting for something that God hasn't given you. Covetousness? A desire to be in a place of authority? A desire to have something that God hasn't given you. And we're living the life of the world, we're living the life of God on Sunday, and we're trying to find the intersection between these two circles. We have mixed thoughts every day, and we need to ask God, God, work on my mind, my will, and emotions. That's why Romans chapter 12 tells us to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, because then you will know what God's will is for your life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Wow. I've always been fascinated by the best words in the Bible and the worst words in the Bible. And they're the same words. Prepare to meet your maker. If you are a believer, the idea of seeing God, the beautific vision, 
The idea of seeing God is the greatest thing or ought to be the greatest thing in your life. If you are an unbeliever, the idea of meeting God should terrify you. It may not because you're unaware. Your heart is hardened. But to the believer, the idea of seeing God is the ultimate desire. But wait a minute. Didn't God tell Moses nobody can see God and live? I mean, God's going to show up, you're going to look at him, and you're going to collapse into, I don't know, a pillar of salt or something? Well, yeah, God did say that to Moses. But you know, Moses was a sinful human being just like you and me. There is going to come a time when we, having received the righteousness of Christ, will enter the presence of God. And that could be what this is talking about. But in that case, how is it different than verse 1, I mean, the first of the Beatitudes, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, if I've got heaven back here in the first of the Beatitudes, the doors of heaven have been opened, it's mine. What is it adding to me if over here, in this beatitude, it says I can see God when I already got that over there? What's the distinction? I take it to mean this. Yes, we're going to see God. We are going to enter the presence of God because we acknowledge we couldn't do it on our own. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But I believe as you and I move toward purity in heart, we begin to see God now. You mean God shows up, big bright light? No. We begin to see how God is working in the world around us. You know, as long as I have mixed motives, I am going to project those mixed motives on everybody else. Okay? I am out to get ahead, so I'm going to assume you're out to get ahead, and I'm I'm going to assume every time you talk to me, you're trying to get ahead. And I'm not going to see how God is working in your life, in your life, in your life, or in the world around us, because I'm going to be consumed with my goals and my vision. Why was it that Jesus was able to look at that crowd and realize they are sheep without a shepherd, while I look at the crowd and all I see are people getting in my way because he was focused on the will of God. And he looked at the crowd and he said, gospel opportunity. You and I, going through life, somebody interrupts us. Shoot, I was going to go have fun. This person shows up. They want to talk to me. I don't want to talk to them. I've talked to people all day long. And God says, gospel opportunity. And we go, oh, ding, And we see God's movement, his hand in the world today. Back to Romans chapter 1. We were shown the things of God. We chose to worship the created thing rather than the creator. He gave us over to our sins. And there's that downward spiral. But here's the cool thing. We acknowledge the fact that we cannot do it on our own. We are poor in spirit, and he gives us the kingdom of heaven. We acknowledge the fact that we are sinners. We sin all the time. We've sinned in the past, and we mourn for our sins. And he says, you're comforted. We develop meekness because we realize that we're not the key. 
God is the key. And we develop meekness. We have a thirst and a desire to know the things of God because we know what he has done for us. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. And he says, I'll fill that up all day long. But we know that we live in a world of people who are just like us. And we receive mercy, so we have to show mercy to them. And we realize that as we show mercy, we receive mercy, and life is good. And then we work on our mind and our will and our emotion to become more in line with how God would have them be directed. And guess what? We begin to see the world as God would have us to see it. They're all connected. They're all connected. And as we move toward purity of heart, we begin to see the things of God. And yes, yes, there is going to be a day when the pure in heart are going to see God. If you show up at the doorstep of heaven, And you still are thinking you can do it on your own. You really haven't mourned over your sin because you know what? They were a lot of fun. Your pride is still intact. You have hungered and thirst for the things of this world. And you know what? I'm not showing meekness to anybody because that's a sign of weakness. We're going to show up at the gates. And God is going to reveal himself to that person. And that person is going to collapse because they know what awaits them. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that each of us, every one of us today, would work, would rely on you to drive us, to push us, to be more pure in heart. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to give us grace when we fail, and I pray, Lord, that you'd give us strength and encouragement to carry on because, Lord, each and every one of us wants to see God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.